everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. My name is Jonathan. Uh, Three or four days ago, we began uh, a liturgical season in Christendom. Anybody know what that season is called? Lent, yeah. That's not been part of my tradition until a few years ago. I don't know if for how many that's been part of your tradition, but simply put, Lent is like a is like the thaw between winter and spring, a, a season where we're really invited to prepare the soil of our own heart. And um, like I say, not a familiar tradition to many in the evangelical world, but the early church observed Lent uh, before Christmas even became a holiday. This has been going on for um, over a thousand years. And so if you're unfamiliar, Lent is a 40-day period before Easter when we're called to kind of take inventory of our lives, you know, to clear out those things that might distract us and, and allow us to make a, a commitment to him so that we can commune more intimately with God. So it's a time for all of us, those who've known Christ for all our lives and those who have maybe even yet to encounter him, to clarify, um, to reaffirm our intentions? Do we desire to seek God? Do, do we do so with intention and with diligence and with discipline? Or, or do we just kind of float along hoping that, that we'll stumble upon God? So the image that Jesus um, presents to us of our Heavenly Father is the image of a God who wants to be found. The God that James says will will draw near to us as we draw near to him. The God who stands at the door of our heart and knocks. Um, The one who invites us to dine with him. We're called to seek God and God will be found. And this should be our goal during Lent, to intentionally seek God who is passionately seeking us. It's, um, It's the season of Lent, which is about kind of walking through the hills and valleys of our domain and and kind of tearing down those idols that we find Uh, it means that we acknowledge through confession those things in our life that have maybe taken the place of god Um, maybe it's a schedule so full that there's no time for prayer or a heart that's so preoccupied with material things or or, or a self-serving career that stopped us from being able to serve others. So, so Lent's a time to kind of clean out the debris in our lives and make room for new growth. Traditionally, people have, have, have fasted during Lent. You know, they'll release something in their lives that kind of has a hold on them. Sometimes it's, it's food or it's a possession or it's an activity. Um, I know people who are fasting uh, from television. And, uh, and, and they just feel that they are um, resisting that idol 
in their life, you know, because they're freed up now to, to connect with God in a different way. So they're preparing the soil of their lives for growth. And I'm fasting from something that's like even too embarrassing to mention here because it's just been time-consuming and idolatrous in its own way. And so I'd encourage you to use this season to say, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and walk the hills and valleys of our, of our life and identify those obstacles. Um, the idols that we, we put in place instead of God and maybe replace them with, with different habits that will help you connect with the Lord. Use this season of Lent to truly seek, seek God, the one who is longing to be found. So maybe we could even, those who haven't considered this season, maybe we'd just take a moment now to just hear from God. Would you, would you close your eyes and allow me to just lead you through a, a listening prayer? So God, search our hearts. Um, God, would you reveal to us maybe what our prevailing feelings have been lately? Has it been fear, sadness, anger? resentment, emptiness? Has it been a season of, of great joy and enthusiasm? Lord, reveal to us what our soul really needs in this time of our life. What are those things that have taken the place of my worship and my prayer and my devotion and my time with you? Would you reveal those things even now? Lord, would you even reveal um, maybe a challenge that we would consider fasting from in these days, uh, consumerism or, or mindless entertainment or phone addiction, social media addiction, sugar, carbs. Have you noticed that you've had more drinks than usual in these days? Reveal these things to us now, Lord. And God, maybe you'd reveal what you're asking us to replace that with so that our relationship might be cultivated with you. Is it, is it scripture memorization? Is it daily prayer? The, the addition of uh, worship music to our playlists? Um, acts of service to those who are most in need? Getting up just a bit earlier so that we could have time to meditate in silence? Would you reveal those things to us, Lord? feel that maybe they just got a little challenge or a nudge or something of, of something that they might, yeah, good, that they might give up or add, yeah, amen. I, I, I'd encourage you to, to do that. 
Um, a very cool thing that we are going to do this Lenten season is, is actually host a meal the way that Jesus himself would have celebrated the Passover Seder meal for the first 32 years of his life. And uh, we're going to have a traditionally inspired Jewish meal followed by this unforgettable presentation by our friends at uh, Jews for Jesus. And it may just forever change how you engage with the Old Testament, change how you engage with communion. Um, just watch this video and, and then I'll, uh, I'll come back. Passover, a celebration of deliverance, of freedom from bondage, bondage that God's people experienced before the exodus from Egypt. But Passover is also a story of God's redemptive love. It is my story, and it is your story, if we choose to embrace it and embrace Him. Sea-soaked carpus and the bitter herb remind us of the tears shed in slavery under Pharaoh's thumb, a reminder that life in bondage without redemption is a life drowned in tears. The Passover lamb points to the God of Israel who, in his unwavering commitment to deliverance, rained down plagues on Pharaoh's Egypt. The worst of these came in the darkness of death's shadow. But God's outstretched arm shielded Hebrews from harm, giving one narrow way to escape, through the covering of each door with the blood of a spotless lamb. It was by this sacrifice that freedom was secured. Death passed over the blood-painted doorposts. They were spared a swift judgment and delivered from Pharaoh because of the blood of a lamb. The Passover Jesus shared with his disciples at the Last Supper signaled the end of blood sacrifice. He paid the ultimate price when he died at Calvary. As the Son of God, he came to deliver us from more than just the slavery of Pharaoh, but from our own sin so that death will pass us over. Jesus is the Afikoman, broken, buried, and brought back. He is the sacrificial lamb, the blood on the doorposts of our hearts, and by his death and resurrection, he brands us, all of us, free, forgiven, and loved. So April 15th, uh, $15, that's your meal and everything. Seating is limited. It's going to be a great night. And uh, uh, so tickets are on sale today at the Welcome Center. We also need some volunteers to, to pull off an event like this. So, you know, we need some sous chefs and some servers and some people to pick up some items. And, and your tickets are complimentary if you can help us in that way. So tickets, volunteer sign up are at the Welcome Center. Um, church, I want to thank you for your, your generosity. Uh, it turns out, statistically, Christians are quite generous. They're generous people. There's a brand new study that was done on, on actually how North Americans and North American Christians best like to give to charity, the methods, the platforms. And uh, it turns out 60%, surprisingly high, like to give online. And you can actually do that at newmarkalliance.ca. And at the top right corner, there is a link called Give. It just couldn't be easier. And then the next most popular way that it uh, turns out Christians like to give, and uh, this was interesting to me because it's a huge drop-off, it's through bank transfers or EFTs. 13% uh, like to give to charitable organizations that way. So you can do that at Newmark as well. Set up an automated 
recurring donation. That's what I like to do. I have a regular salary. I automate what's important to me. That way I don't have to think about it or be tempted to skip it. Most banks will accept New Market Alliance Church as a payee. All you need to do is uh, get an account number, uh, a unique account number from, uh, from the office, and that'll be a, a three or four digit number. Surprisingly, cash was only uh, 6%. Uh, maybe that's not surprising as we move further away from a cashless uh, marketplace. So, so don't worry if you let that offering plate go by. It turns out most people don't donate that way anyways. And then skip ahead to the least popular. It's, it's actually mobile or text to give, about 4%. Um, maybe it's just a little too new for, for it to be totally trusted, but it's, it's, it's very easy. You can do that at Newmark Alliance by uh, texting any amount to 84321, 84321. And the first time you do it, it may take two minutes. Every time after that, it'll take uh, a second. And it's 100% safe and kind of cool, actually. I've, I've done it. So uh, again, however you give, um, we're just grateful. And uh, you're actually supporting the vision and mission that we believe God has given us. And lives are being changed. Marriages are being restored. Uh, God is at work in our midst. So as the ushers come, uh, we invite you to, uh, to be generous and, and watch your screens. Some people say I'm being fearful or maybe even paranoid. My friends call this thing my sphere of fear, but I think I'm being practical. You know, sometimes people get cuts and scrapes and scabs and bruises, but not me. I'm smarter than that. I've got my bubble. It protects me from everything. Yeah, sure, it looks a little strange, maybe even a little weird now, but you know what? I think one day everyone's gonna have their own bubble. It's just, it's kind of ridiculous. You know, I, I love the guy, but we can't do anything together. I mean, it just changes everything when we try and hang out. It, it's hard and it's frustrating to, to be hanging out with him when we can't do anything. I can't even drive him in my car to go get some Dell. We just can't do anything. Yeah, I guess some things are pretty tricky. It's hard to play Frisbee. Uh, it's hard to go for a swim. And uh, I really haven't been able to give anyone a hug in a while. He's afraid um, to, to be in the real world. He's afraid to get hurt. There's a lot to be afraid of out there. You know, you got bees, mosquitoes, dogs, bunny rabbits. Yeah, that's right, bunny rabbits. Have you seen the teeth on those little guys? Um, it, it's just frustrating because it's such a silly thing and I don't know why he does it. Everything that we do, uh, the bubble gets in the way. We can't play frisbee, we can't play dodgeball. It, he kind of cheats when we play dodgeball because I can't hit the guy. This circle of fear that he's in just gets in the way because it's, he's trapped in it and we can't do anything because of that. Um, it's just kind of a, a, a bummer for us as, as friends to be hanging out because it ruins everything. There is no activity that we can do together. It's worth it because there's a lot to be afraid of out there and there's nothing getting inside my sphere of fear. I'm protected. I got nothing to be afraid of. Are you ever afraid that you'll run out of air? Run, run out of air? Oh boy, I guess I never really thought about that. I only have so much air in here. Hell, somebody get me out of here. Well, as we get into it today, here's the situation in Corinth. Uh, it's a young, cool, hip, urban, tattooed kind of church in the middle of this city. And they're trying to figure out how can we be faithful Christians in a city. 
faithful Christians who simultaneously love their city and love God. Um, when, when it turns out culture and God uh, disagree on quite a few things, major philosophical and moral differences. And so how do we not be that guy who just sort of bubbles, you know, circles the wagons and just stays out of culture, but not be so tainted by, changed by the culture And so Paul is dealing with people in a a very similar situation that we are, and he gives them some principles that are going to help their decision-making. So we're going to pick it up uh, at the first, uh, or sorry, uh, chapter 10, verse 23, just out of curiosity, did anybody read anything from 1 Corinthians this week? Okay, I'm making mental note of who the real Christians are, and got it. Okay. And we're going to see what Paul has to say to his church, and uh, there's actually direct application to NAC in 2019 about being in the world, but not of the world. And the first thing he does is quote their own Greek culture, and he says, I'm allowed to do anything, or some translations say, everything is permissible. So, So you've got Christians asking, should I drink alcohol? Should I smoke weed? Can I have cigarettes? Should I go to that show? Should I hang out at that club? Should I watch that movie? Uh, should I hang out with those people? Should I or should I not? And so the first question is, is it permissible? Does, does God have anything to say about it? Maybe, maybe not. Secondly, is it, is it legal? Because not everything's permissible. You can't, you know be drinking and drive, and then have the cop pull you over and say, it's okay, I'm free in Christ. No, he doesn't, they're not down with that. He may get a good laugh of it as he handcuffs you and puts you in the back of his car, but that's not permissible. And if you're a junior high or a high school student, uh, you got to obey your parents. You can't, you know, hey, I'm free in Christ. Well, not in my house and with my car and with my credit card, right? Uh, you got to honor the authority that's over you. And at work, your company, your boss has certain policies and rules, and so you got to obey those. So the first thing is, is it even permissible? Uh, does God have anything to say about it? How about the authorities that he has placed over us in the world? And so that takes a whole bunch of things off the table, doesn't it? Uh, can I get drunk? No. Can I cheat on my spouse? Nope. Can I be a glutton? Nope. Can I gossip? Mm-mm. Scripture are, are clear on those things because they're, they're unloving to others, they're harmful to ourselves or our relationship with God. So, so now just because something is permissible, like I'm 19, I can have a beer. I am 19, you know. And uh, I'm old enough to smoke and, you know, it's not against the law to go to that club and dance Though if you've ever seen me dance, you'd wish it was against the law. Um, you got to ask the second question. Is it beneficial to do those things? Like to watch that film, to listen to that band, to take that class, to hang out with those friends. Not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. Not everything is good for you, Paul says. So... There are things that are acceptable, morally, legally, that are not constructive. Uh, and so what this means is there's a difference between things that are sinful 
and things that are just stupid, right? Like legally, technically, morally, I can take a roofing hammer and just whack my abnormally sized head, right? But Like I could do that technically and I'm not disobeying anything in the Bible. Hey, I'm free in Christ, but but is it good for me? Is it beneficial for me or anyone else? How about, how about cigarettes? Biblically, could someone please find me the verse on cigarettes? No, you cannot. Uh, is it a sin? I, I don't think so. Will smoking keep you out of heaven? No. It'll get you there a lot quicker, though, is the thing. <laughs> um, you're free in Christ to smoke, but is it beneficial? And if you're hoping to get better teeth, better breath, better skin, better heart, better lungs, better overall physical health, is there any benefit to smoking? And listen, this, there's literally no condemnation about what I'm talking about. It's, it's just science, right? There's zero benefit. Is it a sin to eat a Big Mac? I hope not. I got nothing against Big Macs, believe me. Big Macs are paying for my twins' spending money and probably their, uh, part of their education later. I'm pro-Big Mac. But if you eat them every day, is that beneficial? Um, just because I'm free to do it, is it a good idea? Is it, is it wise? So, is it permitted? Is it beneficial? The third question then is, is it loving? Is it, is it kind? Is it loving our neighbor as Jesus said we ought to? So verse 24, don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Now, this is not a typical Western virtue, selflessness, um, accommodation. Um, in our culture, you know, it's, it seems like we're bred from infancy to, to follow your uh, dreams, you know, what will make you happy? Uh, what'll give you self-esteem? Don't let anyone get, you know, between you and your rights. And so Jesus gives us this kingdom set of values that are just counterintuitive to the way that we're, that we're raised. Jesus says, um, well, what he doesn't say is that you are free to do it and it's good for you. Or sorry, Jesus doesn't say you're free to do it and if it's good for you, then do it. He, he adds this addendum to it. And now factor in your friends and your enemies and your neighbor. Is it helpful to them? Is it loving to them? Maybe you're free in Christ to blast your, your ghetto blaster at night. But if you live in an apartment complex, is that really loving your neighbor? So he goes on. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Here he quotes Psalm 24. So when it comes to being involved in culture, like food and marketplace and music and literature and whatever it may be, um, I'm going to say something right now that's going to get me letters. Um, just address them all to glenn at newmarketalliance.ca. <laughs> There's no such thing as sacred and secular. 
That was the delineation that I was raised with. I had my Christian records in this pile and my secular records in this pile. Can anybody relate to that delineate? Yeah. Um, oh, there's Christian things and there's non-Christian things. Nope. Everything is the Lord's. The earth belongs to Jesus. Jesus is sovereign. He rules over everything. So that means that all the music and all the food and all the people and all the cultures and all the styles, they are under him. doesn't mean that they're all obedient. doesn't mean that they're all good or glorifying or honoring to him. But it does mean that we can live on the earth in such a way that we can redeem these things for God. We talked about that last week. And so when you think, should I eat this? Should I drink that? Should I participate in this activity? Is it permissible? Is it a sin or otherwise disobedient? Is it um, beneficial? Will it be good for me or for, for others? And then additionally, is it loving? Will I be a good friend or a good neighbor? Which leads to the fourth question, which is, how will non-Christians think of Jesus if I do this? I suppose the churchy way of putting that is, is is it evangelistic? It says in verse 27, if someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without uh, raising questions of conscience. So let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you're a dude who used to hang out with your buddies on Friday night and you'd eat wings and play poker and have a corona or two or nine and then you become a Christian and your non-Christian buddies call you up and they say, hey, you want to come over? Do you have to go? No. Are you free to go? Yeah. So you got to ask yourself, is it beneficial? Well, it all depends on how I act, right? If I get drunk and I cheat at cards, the probably the answer is no. It's not a great example of a Christian. So I go in such a way that I love my buddies, I hang out with them, I be a friend, and now some of you may say, well, I shouldn't go because when I used to go, I'd always get hammered and we'd end up having some foul conversations and I don't think I can do that. I don't think I'm strong enough. I'm going to end up with a lampshade on my head and you know, having nasty conversations about women, so I don't think I should go. So it's really a case-by-case basis, isn't it? And unfortunately... Christians tend to fall into very black and white teams because we're lazy. Keep the rules clear so that I don't have to discern or think or use wisdom. It's easier in a lot of ways, you know, just to keep the rules straight. Don't hang out with anybody who's not a Christian. Don't listen to non-Christian music. Just watch Christian television and read Christian books and work at a Christian job and Homeschool your kids and pray for the rapture so that you can escape this den of iniquity. That's one team, right? And the other extreme is, oh, well, God forgives, so, you know, get drunk and get lucky and get naked and go crazy and do whatever you want because God doesn't care. And I assure you, he does. So as a Christian, you got to ask, can I continue in this situation and still be a good ambassador for Jesus. Verse 28. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. 
Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. Okay, so now he introduces this idea of conscience. And, and meat sacrificed to idols, that was a hot issue of the day. That's, this was as hot as LGBT, LBG, LGBTQ rights and abortion, and this was the hot-button issue of the day. And if you listen to Glenn's teaching from two weeks ago, um, identifying certain meats with the worship of demon gods and pagan ceremonies. And, and what Paul says is, God has given each of us a conscience. You have the external witness of Scripture, and then he says in, in the book of Romans, you have the internal witness of conscience, right? So you look at the Bible and you say, well, it doesn't say I can't do it. Um, but you check your conscience and you ask, but you know, what does my Holy Spirit-infused conscience say about it? And now some of you here won't drink. You're free in Christ to do it. Your conscience says no. Good for you. Um, some of you won't eat certain food. Maybe you're vegetarian. God gives you freedom to eat it, but your conscience may not permit you. So, good for you. And so the Christians, the moral compass that God has given us, this conscience, and Paul is saying, don't break your conscience. You're going to need that thing. People who don't have a conscience are what we call sociopaths, right? So you need your conscience. And, and you know, for all of my childhood and most of my adult life, um, my parents, as a matter of conscience, did not drink. We did not have alcohol in the house. And I would find out later, it was probably more had to do with my mom's conscience. My mom listens to these podcasts, so just, just one second. Hi, mom. <laughs> Can we just say, all say, hi, mom? One, two, three. Hi, yeah. So I'll, I'll call you later. Um, that's a whole other layer of, I would say, marriage wisdom as well, deferring to the spouse uh, where the conscience uh, affects them. And so another factor that may have entered into it, though, was that for years they worked at a place called Teen Challenge where every day they would see young men um, freed from deep, entrenched drug and alcohol addiction. And so you can understand that the choice of not partaking in even one drink at home when, when you're inundated 24-7 with the devastating effects of alcohol addiction doesn't make you want to run home and have a rum and coke at the end of the day. So I've had these seasons in my life as well where for a time and for a matter of conscience, I've abstained. And so, so some of you will drink some of you will not. Some of you will watch certain kinds of movies. Some of you will not. Some of you will listen to certain kinds of music. Some of you will not. And the answer is, you're all right. If, if you're abiding by conscience and by Scripture, and, and the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom because these decisions, they get very nuanced, don't they? Like, your conscience may even change over time, like my parents have. And I'm not going to lie, it's, 
It's nice having a beer with my old man, but what's even cooler is that they have modeled an openness to change, change their non-essential theology, change their eschatology, change their politics, and it, they're growing and learning. It's a form of humility. It gives me hope for this old dog, you know? So verse 28, show him that you love him more than meat is essentially what he's saying. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Like, this is, this is tricky stuff. We hold these two things like, like tensions that we try to solve, and they can't really be solved. They have to be managed. It's the tension of truth and love, the tension of being in the world but not of the world. And it's not easily figured out. It can be situational, conscience-based. You know, I can't be the guy who affirms all religions are the same, everybody's going to heaven, Jesus is just a nice guy. That's not telling the truth. And I can't be the guy who wants nothing to do with Muslim people, wants nothing to do with atheists or drug-addicted people. That's not loving or helping either. So if I just hang out with my own kind, that's the opposite of what Jesus taught and modeled. So how do I lovingly participate in a worldly culture without, you know, blessing their practices? This is complicated stuff, isn't it? So we have to operate by wisdom and by conscience, and it's the hard part about being a Christian who lives in the GTA. There, there, there are these two teams. One that says, do whatever you want. God doesn't care. They're wrong. And then the other says, don't talk to anybody who sins because, you know, you may catch it like a cold, which is, you know, doesn't work that way. So we wrestle. Is it permissible? Is it beneficial? Is it loving? Is it evangelistic? How will non-Christians perceive this? Will I be showing them both love and truth of Jesus simultaneously. And then verse 31, he's going to talk about the glory of God. Let's just skip that for a second. We'll come back to it. Verse 32, he speaks of the last question, which is, will this tempt somebody else to sin? Um, so you, you think, should I drink this? Well, I'll tell you what. If you're out for dinner with a recovering alcoholic, don't order the beer, Okay? Um, that's not loving or wise or helpful. If somebody's tempted in an area, don't. Um, even though you're free, it, it, it may hurt them, and you, you just don't want to cause somebody else to sin. It says, don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I actually like the old-timey translation from the KJV that says, do not cause anyone to stumble. And if you're a Christian, you're always thinking, am I strong? Were they weak? Am I going to cause spiritual harm? Then I'll abstain because I love you. So he says, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. That's the bottom line again, isn't it? We talked about it last week. We want as many 
as possible. Thank you, you get a dollar. We want as many as possible to meet Jesus, fall in love Jesus, serve Jesus. So I'll give up whatever freedoms I need to. And so our question as missionaries in Newmarket and Aurora and Bradford and, and Southlake is, how can we be people of truth and people of love, incarnating ourselves in the lives of others? You know, how can we go to the pub, go to the game, listen to the bands, watch the films, read the blogs, um, and not violate scripture, not violate our conscience, love people without participating in, endorsing um, sin so that as many people as possible would meet and fall in love with Jesus in this city, in a country that is getting increasingly unlikely that they would do so, statistically speaking. It's very hard to manage this, this tension in Canada. I want to love you. I want to be in community with you. I want, I want to be your friend. I want to serve you. At the same time, I want to be holy as God is holy. I want to be truthful the way that Jesus is truthful. I want to be a person of, of conviction. So how do I manage this? Paul says right in Chapter 11, verse 1. It's such a weird place to put a, a chapter break. There's nothing spiritual about chapter and verse breaks, by the way. He says, you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. So he says, you got to keep looking to Jesus. Did Jesus have some bad friends? Yeah, he still does. He hung out with a lot of bad people. And this was the knock on Jesus, wasn't it? He's a glutton. He's a, he's a friend of drunkards. He's a partier. He's, he hangs out with alcoholics and cheaters. Look at him. God wouldn't have friends like those. Sure he would. Jesus came and he said, I'm like a physician and I came for the sick, not the healthy. It'd be like us going to the hospital and looking at the doctor and saying, what kind of doctor are you? Everybody in here is sick. Well, that's kind of why I'm here, you know, and I'm here for sick people. Well, Jesus hung out with sick people, spiritually, morally sick. And was Jesus their friend? He was. Did Jesus approve of what they were doing? No, he never did. Did Jesus participate in their sin? Nope. But Jesus hung out with guys who drank. He never got drunk. Jesus hung out with women who were using sex to get what they wanted, but he treated them like sisters. Jesus worked a job, but he never ripped anybody off. So Jesus, fully involved in culture, that's the theology of incarnation, you know? He went to the parties. He hung out with the people. He loved people, but he wasn't compromised. And the result was most people hated him. So welcome to the Christian life. The religious folks, right? They hated him because he hung out with the wrong kind of people. And the people who were sinful and perverted and thieving and unrepentant, they hated him too because his holiness revealed their own wickedness, their own heart. So some people, when, when they're confronted with that realization, they 
can either repent or they lash out. And so he says, imitate my imitation of Christ, which means you love everyone. You love God and people without compromising either. You go as far into culture like Daniel did without sinning, without compromising, knowing that everyone is is not going to love you. People from both sides are going to throw rocks at you. One's going to say, you went too far, you have the wrong kind of friends. And the others are going to say, you didn't go far enough. You don't approve of every choice I make. You, don't, you won't get drunk with us. You won't sleep with us. You won't... For some of you, this is the life you're in the middle of right now. This is the tension that you live with. And what I'd say to you is that you're in a, you're in a good place. You're probably exactly where God wants you to be. Trust that he'll lead you through it with wisdom. So circle back to verse 31 that we had skipped. He says, so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, right, whether it's playing guitar or on the softball team or going to the buffet, whatever it is you do, do it, what? To the glory of God, amen. And so what does that mean? to live for the glory of God. You know, it's nice on a bumper sticker, fits on a t-shirt. What does it really mean to glorify God? Well, God is a God of glory. God is, a, is glorious. He exists to be glorified. The Bible speaks of the glory of God about 275 times, 50 times alone in the Psalms. We exist to glorify God. And so when people encounter the glory of God, they respond in fear and in awe and in wonder and in worship and in humility. God is big. We are small. We exist for God. God doesn't exist for us. So the question is, how do you glorify God with your Diet Coke and your Cheerios and your turn signals and, you know, the stuff of life. How do we glorify God in the stuff of life? Well, I hate to sound like a broken record. I hate to give you the Sunday school answered, but we have to look to Jesus. Otherwise, we don't know what it means to glorify God, which means we got to be learning about Jesus. We got to learn how to be a good missionary like Jesus who lives in culture in such a way as to glorify God in all things. And so when the Bible speaks of glory in the New Testament, it connects it to the person of Jesus. He's inextricably linked to the glory of God. Look, Hebrews 1, the Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. John 1.14, the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says that Jesus is the glory, or sorry, is the Lord of glory. In 2 Corinthians, he says that the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, on and on and on. Jesus reveals the glory of God. So Paul says, if you want to be a good missionary, if you want to love your city well, if you want lives to get changed, and you live in this tension of being in the world but you don't want to be of the world, then you got to look to Jesus who glorified God in every way. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So how am I supposed to glorify God in my sickness, right? 
how do I glorify God in a body that I hate? Uh, in my flat, broke life. Are you nuts? Glorify God in, I feel unattractive, I'm single, I'm fired, I'm sick. Glorify God? I mean, again, it looks good on a bumper sticker. Try doing it. Well, you know what? If your religion is, I glorify God when I'm rich, then when you lose your money, you curse God. If your religion is, I glorify God when I'm healthy, then when you get sick, you curse God. If your religion is, I praise God as long as my life looks great, as soon as it starts to go sideways, you start cursing God. That, your religion cannot, it does not work when you need it the very most. So, can you glorify God when you're broke? You can. You can. You know, Jesus did. We worship a God who was homeless. I don't know if you heard uh, uh, I sure hope no one came here this morning thinking that, you know, I'll come to Jesus and he'll make you rich. Oh, you, you mean the homeless guy that we worship? Come to Jesus and he'll take away all your suffering? I'm, I'm sorry, did you, did you know they, they beat him and crucified him? Um, it may not go that great for us either. We, we may not have a long life. We may not make a ton of money. We may not have a hot spouse or cute kids. It may go really hard for us. You may, you may miscarry. You may get divorced. You may get sick. You may get fired. Well, how am I supposed to glorify God in that? Well, you can because Jesus did. And by this point, I'm sure some of you are saying, I'm not sure I want to glorify God. I actually want to be happy I don't want to be broke. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be divorced. I don't want to be a virgin, you know? They make comedies about virgins, and I don't want that. Well, here's what happens. When it comes to living for God's glory or our happiness, we tend to pick happiness, and that's where we sin, right? Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin, by definition, is not glorifying God. Sin is when we're looking at our options and saying, I can either glorify God or maybe eat a whole chocolate cake or, you know, drink a whole couple six-packs or get naked with someone who's not my spouse or that'll make me happy. Everything is an opportunity to glorify God or not. And oftentimes we choose what we think will make us happy rather than glorifying God. Here's the hard truth. Do you end up happy? Often you don't, do you? Your conscience kicks in, the Holy Spirit kicks in. You've chosen what you think will make you happy, and it, it doesn't. It's amazing, isn't it? Most people in our country eat too much, drink too much, have too much leisure time, have too many television channels, live in a decent place, drive a decent car, and they're what? Miserable, depressed, suicidal, going to counselors, taking pills. I'm not happy. I tried sex. I tried drugs. I tried finding fulfillment in a significant other. I tried a, a new house, a new wardrobe. I tried getting a dog. Dog pooped all over the house. Got a cat. The cat won't even give me the time of day. I'm not happy. Could it be? And there are those here who will back me up 
who've experienced this in their own life, God's glory is your joy, true joy, lasting joy, because you'll be doing exactly what you were created to do. Look, I desire for you to be truly happy, um, but let's not be so pathetic as to trading God for chocolate cake or a six-pack or a one-night stand. You got, you got bigger aspirations than that. Man, I hate to quote Switchfoot in church of all places, but you were meant to live for so much more. If you're going to go for joy, then go big. I'll tell you what, I can't promise you today that you'll be rich, that you'll be pretty, that you'll be successful or healthy, that you'll live a nice, long life. I can tell you this, that if you want joy, you can have Jesus Christ, and he'll give you himself. And in glorifying God, what is, what's really peculiar is that as God gets his glory, you get your joy. You'll have purpose. You'll have meaning. You'll have value. You'll have a reason to get out of bed on Monday morning. God's glory and my joy become two sides of the same coin. C.S. Lewis um, has this great quote in The Weight of Glory. He says it this way, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. That's, that's the truth. We could... We could have God and you chose Corona, you know? What? You could have God and you chose RRSPs. You could have God, but you chose the Canadian dream. Oh, man, we're too easily pleased. We're like Esau, who trades in his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Don't do that. Jesus Christ takes away sin, and what does he give us? Himself, life eternal, his presence his wisdom, a new kingdom with a perfect king. But I want a new car. I got something better than a new car. I'm not saying it's a, a, a sin to have a new car. I hope you get a new car. I hope he gives you a car with uh, rims and heated leather seats and the Bluetooth. Uh, but Jesus gives himself. Jesus will give you God. But I wanted him to give me a spouse. I hope he does give you a spouse, a hot spouse. I'd love to see you get married. Married is a great thing, but whether or not he gives you a spouse, Jesus gives you something better. He gives you God. He gives you himself. God is our highest treasure, our, our greatest delight, our deepest joy, our most profound happiness is that God loves us, that God knows us that God cares for us, that we get to live for his glory. Um, I, I saw Kevin and Dagmar in the hardest time of their life experience profound joy and live for God's glory. It's possible, folks. 
It's possible. Here's the beautiful thing. It will also be the best witness to a city that God has placed us in. You know, the city will be looking at us as they did at Kevin's funeral, and they'll be saying, we don't get it with those people. They're a peculiar bunch, but we kind of like them because they seem to know something that we don't. They seem to have some source of joy that we haven't tapped into. Everybody else is pursuing happiness. Very few are pursuing the glory of God. And it's sad because it's the only place where true joy is found. And that's going to what, that'll lead to the transformation of this city. I'm going to pray for us. I want to invite the band to come back. I'm going to call us to repent of weak desires, of trading in God for chocolate cake and video games and nice cars, none of which is bad in itself. But when, when real joy is down the road, man, how foolish is it for us to pull over and not get to that place of joy that God intends? So, Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends here who've gathered. Jesus, I pray that, that we would grab hold of this truth that living for your glory and our joy are not antonyms, they're synonyms, that, that as much as we make of you, um, you delight in us. And as you are lifted up, our hearts rise in song. So Jesus, we confess that we each in varying ways have pursued what we thought would make us happy at the expense of your glory. And, and it didn't make us happy. And we were just doubly miserable and frustrated. So I think of even those who have shook our finger at God saying, you didn't give me what I wanted. You didn't make me happy. And meanwhile, you were giving us yourself. So we repent of our small desires. We ask that you would help us to walk away from those lesser things and that we would come to you today in repentance and in faith. We ask this in Jesus' good and powerful name. May we give you the glory, God. Your glory is so beautiful. It's all glory to you.